This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Maya Smart. Maya is a writer, parent educator, and literacy advocate who has served on the boards of numerous library and literacy organizations. She joins me today to talk about her book, Reading for Our Lives, a literacy action plan from birth to six, in which she provides a clear step-by-step guide to helping your child thrive as a reader and a learner. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Maya. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here. There's a lot of things I want to cover in our conversation because I am the father of three. Um, of course, I, I should have read this book 20 years ago when they were born. We have triplets, um, but uh, I can't. I don't have a time machine, so I can't go back. Um, but I'm going to ask you the, the question I ask everybody as we begin these conversations, which is, Maya, what is your where does your story as an author begin? I think it begins from birth. So my parents named me after Maya Angelou, who of course is a novelist and poet and writer. So I had that name. I feel like the the writing was sort of put on me early. And then I remember my first grade teacher, Mrs. Harpley, had us make little books and they we used wallpaper to make the covers and there's cardboard, but they were kind of a bound little book. And I remember just being so proud to hold that in my hands as a first grader. And then in second grade, Mrs. Rodner just gave me memorable praise. I'm 40 some years old now and still remember the praise that she gave me for a story that I wrote about a character on another continent that I wrote in first person. And she was impressed by that and shared it with me. And it it stuck because I felt like I had some talent and some experience by second grade. Do you remember the, the title of that story that where you had praise heaped upon you? I do not remember the title of the story. I just remember that there was something that she thought was interesting about the fact that I wrote this story in first person about a character in a distant place. Wow. That's, um, that's so cool. And it just, it underscores, um, how important, you know, having a little bit of validation is for, for writers, even from a very young age, that, that validation, that, that support, I mean, it, 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 it helps, right. It, it, it kind of it encourages you to keep going. Yes. So it's a good reminder for, for parents and everyone that to give the the bit of praise, don't take it for granted that the person knows that or sees that thing in themselves that you see in them. Yeah. So, um, and of course, you you have a, a lot to live up to with your name. Um, so that you had to, <laughs> it's a little bit of a, you know, it's uh, those are some. I, I don't want to say big shoes to fill, 
Um, but you know, with the expectation there, that's, um, uh, you know, an interesting observation, but did you always want to be a writer? I mean, from, from the time you were a kid, did, did you know that this is what you wanted to do for, for a living or, or did your sort of career take a couple of different turns? I always thought I would be a writer of some sort. So the big question was just what kind of writing would it be? So I wrote some poetry when I was younger and I have written a picture book that's hidden in a drawer somewhere. And I have uh, professionally worked as a journalist. So wrote hundreds and hundreds of articles in business journalism and education and eventually got to the point of doing something book length. So mm -hmm. I knew I would be a writer, wasn't sure what form it would take. Right. So you, you kind of, you had it, you had it though. I mean, I just interviewed um, you know, a Nobel prize winner who said, I never dreamed of being a writer and like, wasn't even a, a, an option um, for him. And then um, you know, through life experiences, he started documenting things and lo and behold, this is what he does. But, um, but you knew you had this sense, you had the sense that you wanted to write. Absolutely. Took a couple detours. My first job after college was in investment banking and that lasted very, very briefly. <laughs> now, were you on the banking side or were you on the communication side or what, what, what's No, that? I was on, I was on the, the banking side. Oh boy. I probably should have been a, a research analyst of some sort, but I enjoyed, I did internships in college with an investment bank the summer after my sophomore year the summer after my junior year, and then went to work for them briefly in London after I graduated. Uh -huh. And it was, once it was a permanent career thing, then it was very obvious that that was not the path. Yeah. <laughs> how did you know? How did you know? And how long did it take for you to, to connect those dots? Oh, within weeks, I realized that there wasn't anything that I enjoyed about those spreadsheets. <laughs> but I did enjoy the, the cities that I lived in. So the first internship took me to New York and the second internship took me to London. Yeah. So I enjoyed those experiences of living somewhere new and and moving, but not the actual work itself. I know. So it was just funny that it hadn't occurred to me, even though I always knew I would be a writer and hadn't occurred to me to make that the first career choice that someone else was paying you to do. It was the, like the writing was something I knew I would do, but thought I would do on my own time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, all these things always work out the way they're supposed to work out. And if you hadn't had that experience, you know, something else may not have come your way, but I mean, I remember taking a job once and I knew the minute I walked in the door um, of my first day that this was just not going to be the right thing. And, you know, it was a few months later that it, it came to an end. But um, the one thing about investment banking and and those high finance jobs is it, it provides you with access to a, a lifestyle, which can be appealing, but it's not, you know, it's not enough to kind of sell your soul for, you know, that's... Um, that's what I did, my personal feeling anyway. Absolutely. Um, so, so after that, what did you do? What did you wind up doing? How did you, how did you get into kind of writing for a living? So I knew I was interested in writing and I had this resume though that had all these, this investment banking <laughs> experience. So my next move after that was into investor relations. So that was, you know, writing about different financial news and releases and Kind of pitching some of our clients and all of that stuff. So investor relations and media relations. Then I went to journalism school to kind of fully make a transition. But even there, stayed businessy. So my first professional writing job, I did start freelancing before I went to the Middle School of Journalism at Northwestern. But after graduation from that master's program, I was the first online reporter for Crane's Cleveland Business, which is a weekly 
business publication. So finally inching toward writing, but not quite yet into my sweet spot in terms of the content that I was writing about. Yeah. So when, when did that turn happen? When did you get to start writing stuff that you really were interested in writing about? I got married shortly after I started working at Crane's Cleveland Business, and my husband is a college basketball coach. So in that profession, you move around a lot in order to move up in the business. So we very quickly moved to Clemson, South Carolina, and I had to think, well, what do I want to do knowing that we might move again shortly anyway? So we were there a couple of years, and we were in Gainesville, Florida, then we were in Richmond, Virginia. So knowing that moving was in my future, I just chose to freelance and write magazine articles. All right. But again, the things I was most interested in were not necessarily the things that paid the best when you think about making writing a career. Yeah. You have this choice of writing um, writing what pays well and writing what you're most interested in. And so that was sort of a journey over time to figure out yeah. what I was willing to commit to and write in depth. <laughs> and what were you most interested in? I have been interested in a kind of, I think of it as kind of a personal journalism. So personal in the sense that things that I'm deeply interested in and curious about, but journalism in the sense that you apply all those research tools and interviewing and reading documents and um, kind of parsing through things in an objective manner. So I wrote initially some feature articles about education that really captured my interest. I wrote for a publication called Edutopia, which was published by the George Lucas Educational Foundation and had the opportunity to go into classrooms and see some really cool project-based learning things. And then when I became a mom, just got really interested in this question of reading and what it takes to raise a reader, be a reader, that just kind of the details of how that unfolds. Yeah. Well, tell me, how did this book come about? Reading for Our Lives. Ooh, here it is for everyone who can get on YouTube. <laughs> uh, how did this book come about? So my daughter is now almost 11 years old. But when she was little, we named her Zora after Zora Neale Hurston. So put the writing stamp on her as well, just as my parents did with me. <laughs> but before you write, you read. And so I would read to her all the time. And that was sort of the extent of the advice that I had gotten about how to raise a reader. Have left the books around the house, take them to the library, read to them every night. And it seemed to me that something was missing in the process of reading development for the child. If what exactly are they getting from the parent reading? And so just curiosity, started reading a lot of news articles that highlighted disparities among children based on ethnicity and race and socioeconomic background. And there were, so there are all these kind of questions for me about what accounts for the differences in reading results. And if kids are labeled as behind upon kindergarten entry, then it seemed to me that there was more information that parent, more information that parents needed prior to kindergarten to get them ready. So just asking a lot of questions, reading a lot of things and starting as my own personal understanding grew deeper I was able to then engage more deeply with different experts in different disciplines around how reading unfolds. Yeah. And then you, uh, you, you feel compelled to, to kind of put this together in a book. Absolutely. Because like you, this is the book I needed, but didn't have. Yeah. So <laughs> even though I was really curious about it and spent a lot of time digging into it and then also volunteering with early childhood programs and literacy coalitions and library foundations and 
all of those, exploring it from all those different angles. A lot of the key things that I learned, I learned after they were too late to intentionally apply with my own child. So yeah. she turned out fine. She was <laughs> a wonderful, skilled, and fluent reader, but I definitely, there are things I would have done differently had I known. Yeah. You know, I think just think about it, you know, we have, we have triplets, they're 20 years old. Um, and uh, oh my God, they're probably closer to 21 now than 20, which is a very sobering thought, but, um, you know, I think about them when they were born, right? And and all that we did for them, right? We had to feed them, we had to change, and we had to take care of their physical well-being. Um, and yeah, a lot of a lot of that was um, a lot of time was spent reading to them as well. Um, you use a term though that that I, I really um, kind of clued into, uh, which is language nutrition. Um, tell me, tell me, what do you mean by the language nutrition? Because it it really did spark something in my head, but I, I'd love to hear your take on it. When we, if any of us were video recorded in the course of a day with our kids, <laughs> a lot of the, the language that we direct towards kids can be uh, directive commands, sit down, be quiet, stop doing that. <laughs> and so when I talk about language nutrition, I talk about kind of a, a richer kind of dialogue that builds vocabulary and builds the relationship with the child, but uh, most of all builds that back and forth conversational turn-taking that really builds brains. So one of the key things that I was excited to discover during the research, but it was too late to apply with my daughter, <laughs> which is how critical those birth to three years are for building kids' brains, brain structure, brain function, and sort of the connection between language development and literacy development. So you're doing a lot for your child, even without a book, in your hands mm -hmm. when you engage with the baby and recognize that their coos and babbles are important communication and respond to it and ask questions and really treat it like a conversation. Yeah. You know, I do believe, um, and I have somewhat of a unique perspective on this, but I do believe that, you know, babies can communicate, um, intentionally, not just, you know, uh, involuntarily, but when, when our kids were, you know, babies in their cribs. We of course had a, a baby monitor in the room. We'd listen to it in the morning and we'd wake up in the morning to them talking to each other. Like, and they would have like full on gibberish, what we would call gibberish conversations, right? Full on conversations, inflection and tone. Um, and they would keep themselves entertained. And this actually bought us probably a solid 30 to 45 minutes in the morning after they all woke up, <laughs> they would just kind of keep themselves and they didn't realize that they needed to be changed yet. And then all of a sudden, you know, all hell would break loose at some point and we'd have to go in. But and then the party was over for the morning. But um, no, I do believe that they they can communicate. And I, I, I almost wish that we could have a um, like some kind of a decoder mechanism to understand what what it all meant. But um, it's it, it sounds like you feel the same way. Absolutely. And I was in the airport recently and just happened to be sitting next to a family that had a two-year-old. And she and I just got into this long back and forth exchange because anytime she said something, even though I couldn't understand most of what she was saying, I understood. She said boo-boo at one point and airplane pointing to the airplane and mama. But whatever she said, I would say, oh, are you looking at this? And, you know, add some vocabulary, expand on what I thought I understood of what she was saying. And her parents sort of looked at me oddly and they're like, you're having a whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's part of it and that's how they learn and grow. So it's particularly important to to ask questions even of the little ones and to recognize that there's not it's not like a flip switches and one day they understand and one day they communicate in a way that we understand it's all developing and growing and changing 
over time. So we might as well start having the conversations from day one and we might as well start reading the books from day one. Right. There's also like a little validation that occurs there too, right? You're almost validating them as people um, in a way by engaging them in conversation and, you know, at least appearing to be interested in in what they have to say. That that was my favorite age for my kids was right before they were doing like full-on sentences and they were just kind of learning how to like, you know, talk and put really pieces of language puzzles together. Um, I just, I had so much fun with them when they were that, they were that young. I was, I was completely overwhelmed and sleep deprived as well. Yes. With with three for sure. (laughs) It was was a lot of fun. And I mean, really this, this goes beyond just the simple act of reading to them at night. Right. I mean, this is, tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. So reading is, it is incredibly important if you can establish the habit of reading a bedtime story. It's a great way to wind down. It's a great way to connect with your child and it's a great habit soon still so that you have that consistency. Uh, But I do always just want to remind people that you're with your children all day (laughs) in many instances. And so take advantage of those other opportunities to build literacy skills and pre-literacy skills with them through conversation. So I talk in the book about using mealtimes or diaper changes and all these other moments throughout those long days with young children (laughs) to kind of prompt yourself to talk, to point and label to talk, even when they're older, let's say three or four, and they're starting to pay attention to print, it is a powerful lesson for a parent to give just to describe how letters are made out of lines and dots and curves. And, oh, that's the letter A. It's made with two long lines and one short one and just kind of tracing and describing, making explicit those things that we know as adults and fluent readers, but kids have to learn the difference between a letter and a number or a letter and a scribble. Yeah. Yeah, and no, no sense in waiting until they're in preschool or kindergarten um, to 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 begin that learning process. And if you think about it as a parent, when they're itty bitty, you go through these different seasons of parenting as well, even as an expectant parent. So I always say that reading for our lives is a great baby shower gift because before you have that baby, you have a little more time <laughs> <laughs> and you're less sleep deprived when the when the baby lands in your lap reading 240 pages about how to raise a reader might seem daunting, Um, but you go through these different phases and we can use our different phases as parents to tune into different things that are going on with kids developmentally. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up a great point. There's a, uh, there's another podcast out there um, run by a, uh, an author and host named Zibby Owens. The title of the podcast is so perfect. It's called moms don't have time to read. Um, yeah, absolutely. This would be a great baby shower gift. Um, cause get it done now. Um, <laughs> get it and then done. you can just use it as reference. You'll, you'll think they'll, there's turn two and you can flip to the chapter that describes kind of ages and stages and book behavior and reading development and see, Oh, just dive into what's going on with them now. And then go back to, to not reading. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I it's honestly, some of my favorite memories, um, when my kids were young, I was reading to them at night. And I, you know, I would read with same order every night. I go to Maggie's room, I go to Grace's room, and I go to Patrick's room. So Patrick and Patrick needed to have like 10 books read to him. I mean, to the point <laughs> where I memorized all four books in Harold and the Purple Crayon. Um, I didn't even have to look at the pages. I knew word for word <laughs> what they were. Um, but now like my kids, um, they're all big readers. I mean, I, and I love it. I'd love to see them walking around the house with, with a book. Um, they're always going to the bookstore or library. Um, 
Uh, it makes me it makes me very happy. And I'm like, you know, kids, dad has written a few books. Why don't you read some of mine? And they're like, no, we don't want to do that. That'd be weird. I'm like, come on, you're old enough. Now. You're old enough. Exactly. <laughs> and I think it it for some parents, it can feel intimidating when they hear some people say, oh, I read to my child an hour every night from, you know, birth through 14 or whatever. And it feels intimidating and excessive. And who has time for that? But I like to encourage people just do it's a five minute fairy tale count. Yeah. <laughs> and normally if you sit down with the intention you're like, okay, today I've just got this, this one board book and we're going to do that. Sometimes you, it flows into another book and another book, but so it's okay to start, start with the five minutes. <laughs> now with my son, cause he, he just wanted so many stories. I would always fall asleep on his bed, just like with a book <laughs> on my nose. I mean, it was, it was just, yeah. that's where my <laughs> wife would find me. She's like, I didn't know where you were. And I'm like, passed out in Patrick's room. Um, <laughs> But so, so what do you think? Like people, like let let's say you know every new parent now reads this book. Um, what happens in our society and our culture? I think we have kind of an army of really informed people, people who know how reading develops. Parents will have greater insights into reading instruction when kids get school age and reading curriculum. We have a lot of challenges now in terms of some kids just never becoming skilled or fluent readers. There was a stat mentioned on a morning show that I was on earlier in the week that said that 50% of Americans read below a sixth grade level. Well, sixth grade level is not gonna cut it for most professional jobs and for people to sort of fulfill their potential as citizens and, and leaders and parents. So it's kind of an urgent challenge that we face as a society and I think that we just need more people who are well-versed in the, in the foundations of reading development. So if parents read this and they understand how as parents you can teach vocabulary and teach kids to have awareness of sounds within words and teach letter sounds and teach kids to make those connections between letters and sounds and teach some introductory spelling things, then you're just a savvier person who can then influence policy and curriculum and all these things on a, a broader scale. So I think the book is about, on one hand, supporting and nurturing your own child, but it's also about advocating for change for all children. You know, that statistic you mentioned, um, um, you know, from that morning show where, what was it? Um, 60% of people read below a sixth grade reading level. Was that right? I think it's 50%. They said. 50%. Well, I mean, that certainly explains or partially explains the success of Fifty Shades of Grey, because that book, if that was at a sixth grade reading level, I'd be shocked. Um but uh, I digress. Um, <laughs> I digress. But, you know, I have to imagine um, even much more so than math, reading, you know, uh, 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 reading ability um, is is got to be a, um, a powerful predictor for success um, later on in life. Absolutely. It affects everything from health outcomes to employment prospects to likelihood of incarceration. And I think what's going on now is that we're, in some ways people are able to get by with lower levels of literacy than in the past because of an assist from technology, but it only gets you so far. When I did my book event in DC, there was a community college professor in the audience who talked about receiving some student papers and just being really puzzled by the, the quality of the writing and setting up one-on-one -on -one meetings to talk about their editing process and their thought process and how they compose the papers. 
and discovering that they had just composed the papers using talk to text on their phone. So that is not gonna work in the workplace. <laughs> but it was a way for them to sort of adapt to a limitation that they had in their, their education and preparation. So it, it's, it will be really interesting to see how this unfolds, but I hope that we can create a heightened sense of urgency around this and understand that what's required of us as readers is only getting higher and higher. Even those when you download an app, these consent things that we're <laughs> agreeing to, all these contracts, I feel like I am participating in more contracts and agreements now than I was 10 years ago. And I'm constantly asked to sign and understand something. And just as citizens, knowing what we're what privacy permissions, all these things that we're giving to these tech companies, I just think it's so so interesting and so important. Also legislation, the wording of some of these things we're asked to vote on, like you need to read at a, a higher level than sixth grade to responsibly manage your life, I think, as an adult. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I know we've been talking about um, reading for a bit, but I'm going to I'm going to change gears for a moment because this is the, the point of our conversation where I always, always ask people about uh, a little bit more about who they are to, to try to understand a little bit more about who they are. And I do that uh, at first by asking about um, pop culture. So, uh, Maya, when you were a kid, what were some of your favorite TV shows? What were some of your favorite TV shows growing up? I was definitely. Um... A Cosby kid. So, so watch the Cosby show. Eight so o'clock. I remember my bedtime was extended so that I was able to watch a different world. So oh, I was yeah. extended by 30 minutes to watch that. And it's just funny now when you think about everyone watched the same shows because there were so few shows on. Yeah. <laughs> and you had that sort of shared experience of talking about the episode the next day, something my 10 year old can't relate to because everything's streaming, everything's all the time. And it's just. Different. No, but if, and, if, and if you missed the Cosby show, right. Uh, that was Thursday nights. If I remember correctly, if you missed that, or if you missed cheers um, and, and then you, you had nothing to talk about the next day, uh, you <laughs> really had a fear of missing out on it. Whereas you're right. We don't have those shared experiences anymore with, with TV viewing, you know, it's uh, everything is on demand or streaming. And then I also, as I got older, I watched a lot of junk. I was thinking about that. I'll, sometimes I'll wonder, I'm like, what is my daughter doing on her iPad? And she's playing Roblox or some of these things that I think are so weird and not educational and, you know, brain building and all these things. And then I think about, well, what was I actually watching at that age? And I was watching Oprah or I was watching Ricky <laughs> Lake or who knows. So, oh my gosh, we all survived was so popular when I was in college. Um, I lived in a house that I shared with a couple of other people. And uh, every morning it was Ricky Lake and the, people would sit up and it would drive me nuts because I was always like, I was a morning person. I was always, you know, I had early classes or whatever. And they, they'd sit there like chewing tobacco, watching Ricky Lake. I mean, this was just not my idea of a good morning, but man, was she popular? Was Ricky it was, Lake it was, it was a moment, a moment in time. Yes. I watched the Today Show as a young person, I remember uh, Jane Polly and Bryant Gumble. I think were on when I was oh, yeah. little. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and Al Roker was uh, was probably on back then, a much uh, younger version of uh, America's Weatherman. Um, do you have a favorite episode of the Cosby Show? Because I know I do, but uh, I'm just curious if you have a favorite episode. There, I have sort of moments 
that I remember. I remember there was one episode where Theo had a Gordon Gartrell shirt. It was like these patchwork kind of button down shirts that no one would wear today. So that's one memory. I just remember um, Felicia Rashad as Claire Huxtable, just some of her facial expressions and those mom looks she would give. I try to emulate those now as a mom, like just yeah. give them a look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have to say mine and my wife agrees. Um, so I know that there's some truth to this one. Um, he goes to buy a car. All right. So Dr. Huxtable goes to buy a car and Sinbad, you know, the comedian is the, um, is the salesman, but you know, Cliff Huxtable says to Theo, do not tell them that I'm a doctor. Do not let it slip that I'm a doctor because then you know it's going to ruin his negotiating. Right. So the deal's about to go through and then Gilbert Gottfried uh, guest star kind of walks by and says, Oh, Dr. Huxtable. And then, you know, and it was off to the, whatever. Hey, <laughs> that's what I remember. That's my favorite episode of the Cosby show. Right. Most memorable anyway. Yes. Um, how about musical artists growing up? Who did you like to listen to? So growing up in our car, it was always WZAK 93.1 FM, which was a Cleveland R&B station. So just listen to a lot of R&B <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. Cleveland. So did you grow up in Cleveland? I grew up in Akron, okay. so about 25 miles or minutes away. Got it. Yeah, Cleveland. Cleveland was a big music city. I mean, there was a lot of rock and roll history in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And then we had uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony from Cleveland <laughs> was our big contribution to hip hop at that time. Wow. When, when, when I was a kid, we had this old, old station wagon with an 8-track player in it. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. We had an 8-track player and a CB radio, which came in handy when we ran out of gas. But in that, um, my parents are uh, a little bit on the older side. They just turned 90. So growing up, they always had like these like big band music. Um, but Perry Como, Pure Gold, I'll never forget it. That's what uh, that was my childhood memory is, is Perry Como in the A-track player. Um, you know, and to this day, I, I dance with my mother to a Perry Como song at my wedding. Um, but there you go. Um, how do you, because I, I do believe that we all have inner children inside us, uh, Maya. How do you feed your inner child, if at all? I, that is an interesting, do I think about my inner child and how, I'd like to laugh. I find myself funnier than many of my relatives, but I crack myself up. So I can often be found just laughing. I'm also, I'm introverted. I'm an only child. So I think I have just kind of a rich interior life and I have a running monologue of things that I think are funny and playful. I'm not, um, I'm not so much into games, particularly if they have dice, like things like that to sort of kill my spirit. It's like a game where you're moving a token around the board in a circle after rolling dice, those sorts of things do not feed my inner child. But I would say just laughing to myself, um, reading, like to spend time outside walking kayaking that sort of thing yeah getting out into nature absolutely so but no monopoly for you no i just it's really really challenging for me the worst game though is payday which is it has cash like monopoly but there are moments of fun and joy in a monopoly game if it doesn't last too long <laughs> but payday i just it's the worst board game ever <laughs> no not, not monopoly can go on i mean when we used to play as kids it could go on forever and you know you have to almost make up your own rules um and i think everyone <laughs> does that to some extent but just to have the damn game end um in what ways if any is writing therapeutic for you 
I think it helps me organize my thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts and interests. So the act of writing just kind of imposes some, some boundaries and helps me get things in a manageable, workable order. Mm -hmm. And then when, um, when you have the intent to write something, but you're staring at the blank page, you know, or blank computer screen, depending on how you write, what does that do for you? What does the blank page do? What kind of emotions do you experience? It uh, just makes me recognize that I haven't done enough reading or research. So I think even more than a writer, I've always wanted to be a professional reader. But so far, I haven't discovered a job. The closest I came was I recorded the audiobook version of my book. So that was the closest I've gotten to being compensated just for reading. But wow. ordinarily, you have to read and then write something about what you read. You can't just read and keep it to yourself. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a that's a long process. That's a labor of love. Recording an audiobook, much much easier and shorter than writing the book for sure. Oh, there you go. Um, thinking about publishing, are there any lessons uh, about publishing that you felt like you learned the hard way? I think the I don't know that I learned it the hard way. It's you just have to do the work. <laughs> I think I spent a lot of time. I had a great sense of urgency about getting this book out into the world when COVID hit. So I finished a book proposal, got a literary agent in May of 2020, and then had the book deal by July of 2020, and then a book contract by, the book was due August of 2021. So prior to that, I had always known I was gonna be a writer and would write something, but I really needed a deadline <laughs> and external accountability. So I'm not someone who could have self-published a book I never would have finished. I never would have felt like it was good enough for readers. So I guess one lesson I learned is just get some kind of deadline, some kind of accountability partner or system to, to get it done. Would you, um, would, would this have come to be if, if not for the pandemic? I mean, was it, was it, were you planning it before that? I had been tinkering around with ideas related to rating, raising a reader for years. So since my daughter was very young, at one point I thought I might do 101 ways to raise a reader. And <laughs> but then I realized no one wants 101 ways <laughs> to do anything. Like maybe let's do the hard work, which is narrowing it down to five to seven things that if parents really committed to them and did them, that <laughs> would make a difference. Yeah. So I think that was definitely COVID and getting an agent just finally saying parents are home with kids. They're struggling. They don't know what to do. And they're seeing that virtual education isn't effective, particularly with the little ones. So I did, that was another, for me, another form of external accountability, feeling like I really had something to contribute that could help real people in the world. Yeah. Kind of going through that process of writing the proposal, finding the agent, getting the publishing deal. Did you learn anything about yourself during that process? I learned that I have a really good support system. So I had people who could help, people who could give good advice. I learned that I was good at following instructions. <laughs> so I was thanking someone who had given me some feedback on my book proposal and actually introduced me to my agent and, um, some other important milestones. And I was just giving him like these just profuse thanks. And he said, I give a lot of people that same advice, <laughs> and those same introductions, and they haven't made of it what you have. So I think I've learned that if I respect the giver of the advice, I will follow the instructions and can execute. 
Well, there's a certain amount of persistence required um, to getting a, a not not just a book written, but a book you know on the shelves somewhere. It uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Yes, and there are definitely days where you have to be your own cheerleader. So something that was helpful for me, I have a couple playlists of just like a minimal number of songs. Like some just have like two or three songs on them. <laughs> and that's like some days like you don't you have to almost brainwash yourself so I'll put in one of those playlists and it'll play on a loop these messages that I need to give myself to to keep pushing yeah. to stay the course because it's for me it was an extraordinary challenge going from years of experience writing articles to something book length it's not I think I thought it would be a collection of articles and it's not, it's its own <laughs> thing. And you have to make these part <laughs> work together and kind of create a, a journey or, or a transformation for the reader. So it was definitely a, a step up in terms of degree of difficulty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just thinking about your experience, what, what advice would you give to somebody who comes up to you and says, Hey, you know, Maya, I, I want to be an author. I want to, I want to, I want to write something, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it doesn't matter. But what, from your experience, what would you, what would you tell that person? To take yourself seriously it was really hard for me to carve out the time to work specifically on this project that didn't yet have an audience. And for me putting time on the calendar. If I said, oh, I'm going to work on this from Wednesdays from 10 to noon or whatever the case was, that didn't work for me. I kind of didn't respect these time blocks in the way that I definitely, if I had a, a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment, there's no question that I would show up at the appointed time, but it was really hard for me to keep those appointments with myself. So what helped me more than the, the time on the calendar was the space to write. So as we're talking, I'm sitting in a little office. I think it's like 10 feet by 10 feet, if that. <laughs> and so this is kind of my work space. So having that dedicated space, when I step through the door, I'm going to do something that contributes to the writing of a book or the promoting of a book. So that was really helpful for me. So I think taking yourself seriously, finding a designated time, if that works for you, or a space, which worked for me, the external accountability, it could be a writing coach that demands, you know, 20 pages every month or whatever it is that works for you or the accountability of this imagined audience that you think could really benefit from the information that you have to share. So dead, deadlines <laughs> and boundaries, accountability, all that helps. Well, now that you've given um, some words of advice to an aspiring writer, um, if you could give some words of advice to your younger self, uh, what would you tell the younger Maya? What what would you whisper into her, into her ear, or what would you write down and, and send to her as a letter? Since we are talking about reading and writing, I would tell her to just pick something and go through the process with it. So there was a, a stretch for years where I would write a book proposal, and then I'd say, "Oh, that's not the right topic for me," and then I write another proposal. And I think it would have been good. There are so many lessons you can only learn by actually writing the book. <laughs> you just have to kind of do it. And so I read every book proposal book under the sun and I attended lots of writing conferences and have this rich network of writing friends. And so that is wonderful. And I advocate that definitely taking part in writing groups, not necessarily critique groups, but groups of writers who are learning about the business of writing and publishing. But I would definitely say you have to do, do the work. Reading a book about how to write a book is not the same as writing a book. <laughs> yeah. Do the work. Well, um, where can people buy 
a uh, reading for our lives. Reading for our lives is available at all major retailers. So you can find it on amazon.com, bookshop.org, I believe, and Barnes and Noble and other places. And on my website, mayasmart.com, that's M-A-Y-A-S-M-A-R-T.com slash book. I have links to my book page on a dozen different websites so you can pick the retailer of your choice. There you go. And Maya, where, if on social media, um, where can people go to follow you or uh, learn more? I'm most active on Instagram where I'm Maya Smarty with a Y. Maya Smart was taken. <laughs> and on Pinterest, I have a lot of resources for parents there and I'm slash Maya Smart on Pinterest and Maya Smart on Twitter. And my website, mayasmart.com publishes each week new resources and lists of picture books and other literacy activities for parents for free. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Maya, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with me and the listeners of Uncorking a Story and all the best with the book. Thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful chatting with you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.